Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. I'll be reading today from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The word of God for the people of God. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. In John 8, chapter 8, verse 12. It's the second of seven I am statements which are found in John's gospel. The first occurs in chapter 6, just before, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Later in the same chapter, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Did you know that the I am statements often correspond with a religious festival and also a miracle in John's gospel. John calls them signs. So seven I am statements corresponding with a religious festival and a miracle. So just before I am the bread of life, Jesus is attending the Passover festival. And he multiplies five loaves and two fishes in order to feed 5,000 people with the lunch of one young boy. So what's the context for I am the light? Well, the coming festival is called the Festival of Booths, which was really a celebration of light, remembering and honoring the ways in which God led the people through the dark wilderness with a pillar of fire, a pillar of light. Do you remember that story? You see, without electricity, without a propane generator, without a battery-powered flashlight, without the button on the smartphone, which Pastor April referred to earlier, the Israelites were completely without light unless somebody lit a fire. So for 40 years, God lit the fire and led the people along the wilderness journey. So to commemorate that, that transformational experience of God's presence in the wilderness every year during the Festival of Booths, 
the temple, which had massive bowls on each of its four corners, would fill the bowls with thousands of wicks and oil. And during the festival, they would light all of those thousands of wicks on fire so that they could burn brightly through the night. So the temple was lit up and on a mountain, and it could be seen for miles, a kind of experience of light that would not be known in the ancient world outside of this particular event. In the midst of this significant remembrance, Jesus comes and proclaims himself to be the light. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Do you feel the tension? The temple is supposed to be the light with its wicks and its oil burning, blazing on the hillside. And yet here Jesus comes saying, I am the light. These are the first words out of Jesus' mouth after the infamous incident with the woman who was thrust into the spotlight of judgment. You know what's really crazy about this? Of all the times that I've heard this story, that I've read this story, you know, the one about the woman caught in adultery, that's how we refer to it, I never before realized that it happens here in the shadow of the temple. For some reason, and I don't really know why, but I always imagined it taking place like in a marketplace or something like that, an outdoor area, public space. But no, here it is unfolding literally on the doorstep of God's own house. A house which was supposed to be the bearer of light. In fact, when we start to pay attention to this story, there are many, many things that might surprise us. It is one of those really well-known stories in the Bible, one that we could probably tell by memory. We love to quote it, especially the part about, let he without sin cast the first stone. We have dramatized the sounds of the stones falling from angry or perhaps just energized hands as they prepare to literally cast their judgment on the lowly woman who was brought before them. And as much as we love to tell this story, it's odd that it doesn't appear in the Revised Common Lectionary, meaning It's not included at all in the three-year plan for the global Christian church for worship or preaching. Furthermore, and some of you may have caught this, if you read the Thursday email and you click on the link where you can read the scripture for the day, maybe you go and read it in your own Bibles. If you did that in preparation for today, and if you happen to have a study Bible, you may have noticed that this whole episode, or at least verses 1 through 11, which is the story of the woman, they are bracketed by parentheses. And if you noticed that and you went and you read the footnote in your study Bible, you would have discovered that it's because this story is not included in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. It's not included. 
In fact, it doesn't appear at all in Western commentaries on the gospel until the 900s. I realize we're getting a little bit nerdy, but bear with me for a minute. I thought it was super interesting this week as I was reading on this text, and I discovered that most scholars now agree with Dr. Raymond Brown. Is that a name that's familiar here? With Dr. Raymond Brown's assessment. For those of you who aren't super familiar with Greystone's history, Raymond Brown was the husband of one of our matriarchs, Kara Lee Brown, who passed away just a couple of years ago. But most scholars now agree with his assessment that this story, the one that we read and worship today, was a later addition to the gospel placed right in the middle of Jesus's experience in Jerusalem during the festival of booths, during the celebration of light. So as the text reads now, with the addition of this story, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the Pharisees bring before him a woman who was caught in the act, caught in the act of adultery. John tells us outright that this was really just a trap, but still the questions come rushing into our minds as quickly as the woman is thrust into the scene. Caught in the act, huh? The urgency of the situation rises as the Pharisees demand answers. Well, where is her partner? You know, the law says that we should stone him to death, too, and it does take two to tango. And so if you have a curious mind, you have to wonder, why just her? The audience wants answers, though, and they look to Jesus again as a trap. They want him to quickly jump to a conclusion, quickly, as they press in on him. But Jesus slows the whole thing down. Refusing an easy answer. And as he slows, he bends down and starts writing on the dirt. Now, a whole lot of ink has been spilled speculating about what Jesus may have been writing in the dirt. Was it the name of her partner? Was it the names of the individuals who had gathered around? Maybe the names even of the Pharisees who drug her in. Was it the name of their sins? Or did Jesus write the Ten Commandments? Or did he begin writing all 613, the mitzvah, the laws of the Hebrew text? Did Jesus draw a picture of the temple? Maybe even with the bowls of oil on fire. Did he write the word love? Or did he write something else altogether? The truth is, friends, we will never know for sure what Jesus wrote in the dirt, but what we do know is that Jesus' action slowed everything to a halt as he knelt down to write in the dirt. The crowd of Pharisees and religious leaders pressed in on him for an answer, urging him toward swift judgment of this woman. No time for questions, no time for reflection or understanding or empathy, just judgment and judgment now. As Jesus wrote, the crowd kept questioning, pushing for judgment until he stood up and said, if any of you is without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. 
You can almost hear the percussive thud of the rocks falling one by one from the hands of the would-be accusers as Jesus bends back down to continue writing whatever it was he was writing. Once the crowd had dispersed and the woman was alone with Jesus, he stood back up to address her, this time as more than just a sinner. This would be the first time in the story that she is seen as more than her mistake, more than her situation. I mean, the truth is, of all the questions, we don't even know if she was a willing participant in the crime or not. Regardless of all that remains unknown, though, Jesus addresses her not as an object waiting for judgment, but as a human being, broken, longing for love, just like every one of us. I am the light of the world, Jesus says, as abruptly as the woman who was thrust into the scene. But wait, isn't the temple supposed to bear the light? Could it be that the temple had traded its light for judgment somewhere along the way? Could that be why the story doesn't appear for so long? Could that be why the story is about slowing down? No, stopping our judgment altogether. It interrupts Jesus' teaching at the temple. Is that why Jesus says, I am the light, when everybody knows it's the temple that's supposed to be the light? Is the late edition of this story, the one that came after the manuscript of John's gospel was originally compiled, is that why this becomes part of the story 900 years later? Is it because the early church had become something it was never meant to be, a house of judgment rather than a beacon of light on the mountain. Susan Shaw, who is a professor at Oregon State University, also an ordained Baptist minister and a senior columnist for Baptist News Global, published a provocative article this week. And it basically asks the same question of today's church. Quoting one of her professors from Southern Seminary, she writes what she learned in school, which was good ideas become institutions in order to sustain the idea. But eventually, sustaining the structures becomes more important than the original good idea. Do you follow? So then she continues in her own writing, asking the questions... Perhaps the institution, and she's talking about the church, has moved so far away from the initial idea that it now exists only to sustain itself. If so, maybe it's time we set aside any notions of what church is and start over with the initial idea. Well, what's that idea, she asks? Jesus was pretty clear. The idea was love. The initial idea was love. Susan Shaw, much like Jesus in the scene with the woman, suggests that the church might need to slow itself down, might need to pause its unrelenting pace of programming and projects, and instead ask some critical questions. And here are some of the questions that she suggests. What if we, we meaning the big global church, 
What if we asked people what they need, especially the people in the communities immediately around us? What if we stopped trying to convert people and simply lived in love toward them, meeting their needs, offering unconditional friendship and support, taking on their issues, and helping to make the world better for them? Would they then see Jesus in us? What if we asked how we could work together for justice? Perhaps that could become the unifying center of the church. After all, for Jesus, the communal practice of love was justice. For Jesus, the two things were never separate. He asked people to live love in their personal relationships and to do justice as the practice of love on a large scale. Imagine, she says, if Christians were to commit to having every action guided by the most loving thing we could do in any given situation. Imagine if we sided with the oppressed, spoke truth, did justice, showed grace and mercy, lived in joy. Imagine if we, the church, worked together with all people of goodwill to transform the structures that perpetuate inequality and violence and harm. Just imagine it for a minute. Imagine the Christian church of the 21st century regathering the proverbial as the proverbial wicks in those bowls of oil, gathering as people from all walks of life, all political affiliations, all professions and educational paths, all racial and ethnic backgrounds, all professions, all citizenship statuses, all socioeconomic statuses, all of us, each and every one with our range of gifts and abilities, What if we all could see the light of love blazing strong from the corners of the temple and knew that our love, too, could be welcome there? What if we became a bowl of sorts, a container big enough to hold all the wicks so that the light of love, God's love, could shine strong from the corners of our temple, in and through us. Wouldn't that be a miracle? I am the light of the world, Jesus says. The temple was supposed to be. It was intended to be. But it traded the light of love for the shadow of judgment somewhere along the way. And I wonder if the church did too. I am the light of the world, Jesus says, and I'm standing here trying to teach you, ready to anoint you. No, douse you in holy oil so that you too might be the light, so that you could carry the light, allow the light of God to blaze in and through you. But first, you've got to set down those judgment stones so that your hands can become free to hold the wick. I am the light, Jesus says. Come, follow me, and let's light up the world. Amen.